0: Yo, episode 51 with the one and only Dr. Paul Offit. So excited for you guys to hear what we got to talk about. Vaccinations all across the nation. What? Keep in mind, this episode was done in the last week of May, so a lot has changed in terms of the numbers down south. But obviously, the principles of what we need to do to create that vaccine are still the same. So, without further ado, let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Quadcast. We are back in full effect with Dr. Paul Offit. He decided to join us to talk about all things vaccine. What are the steps? What is the timelines? What are the risks? All of this is covered with our conversation. so thank you for listening. A couple of things before we get started. I want to do a quick shout out to our new sponsor, Kim Sutton, from the Positive Productivity Podcast. She's designing our new website, and it's, it's looking good. I can't wait for you guys to see it. It should be out by the time we have our mega episode. Uh, use the link in our show notes if you want any enhancement in terms of your website design, Marketing, any business-related material. She is the bomb. She's helping out my boy JP over at the Millionaire's Lawyer. I love, I, I love Kim. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Okay, let me tell you about Dr. Paul Offit. He is a pediatrician specializing in infectious disease, expert on vaccines. He was the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, so he, he comes with some street cred. He's recently authored the book Overkill. When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, which I'm, I'm super excited to dive into. So yeah, we like I said, we talk all things COVID here. So like I said, we talk, we cover the vaccine. We also actually talk about, you know, what he would do different knowing how COVID-19 has developed in the States uh, or and his approach now as things start to open up. So we, we dive into some other issues there, but without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Paul Offit. Welcome back. We got Dr. Paul Offit, author of Overkill, the latest book on when modern medicine goes too far. And it was great to have him a couple months ago talking about COVID-19. And today we are going to get into what will it take? What are the steps to create a vaccine? So welcome back, Paul. Thank you. Happy to be back. So literally walk me through what would be the steps for us to be able to create this vaccine that we're all talking about for COVID-19? All
1: right. So, so remember that the typical development process for a vaccine is about 20 years. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains mm. that became the rotavirus vaccine, Rotarix. That was a 26-year effort. That's about right. When you do that, you, usually you, you start with animal model studies meaning, which is to say you have an animal that you inoculate with your virus and then the, the, the animal develops signs and symptoms similar to, the, to what happens to humans. Great, so that, that makes it much easier now for you to see whether or not your idea for what a vaccine could be works. So-called proof of concept studies. So, you, you know, you, you, let's say you want to use a whole killed virus like the polio vaccine. So you kill the virus, in this case, you know, SARS-CoV-2. And then you give it to animals and see whether then when you challenge them with the virus whether they're protected and if so, what, um, what dose did you need what level of immune response needed to happen in the animal what specific, was it antibodies was it T cells was it cytotoxic T cells you can do that in experimental animals very quickly because you can work with thousands and thousands of experimental animals, mm-hmm. which I did actually with our rotavirus vaccines whereas you can't do that you know you can't cut up. People after, for example, you you inoculate them because they hate that, and you know it's just not possible. So, but you can. That's what's the good news of experimental animals. A lot of the work that's being mm-hmm. done now is sort of skipping that part of it. The bad news and the good news. The bad news is we just got the strain. Mm-hmm. We just got the strain a few months ago, so there's no work really that's that's helped us with this. There is no human coronavirus vaccine. There's four strains of human coronavirus to circulate. We don't have a human mm-hmm. coronavirus vaccine to educate us. So we just got strain. On the the good news is. There has never been a greater interest in making a vaccine than this one. I mean, there are more than 70 countries across the globe that are making this vaccine. They are using every possible strategy that's ever been used to make a vaccine, as well as a couple strategies that have never been used to make a vaccine. So they're taking the virus and killing it, like the the polio vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine or the rabies vaccine. They're taking the virus and weakening it, like the measles vaccine or the mumps vaccine or the German measles vaccine or the chickenpox vaccine. They're taking, the, they're taking just one part of the virus, so-called subunit vaccine, mm-hmm. meaning just that spike protein, that protein that emanates from the surface of the virus that's associated with attaching the virus to cells. If you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells with antibodies, then you can presumably prevent the virus from infecting cells or, set another way, from infecting you. So there's that subunit approach. Just give that protein, which is the mm-hmm. way the hepatitis B vaccine is made. For the human papillomavirus vaccine is made. The other approach is, and it's been used for the dengue vaccine and the Ebola vaccine, is take another virus, take a, a, a relatively harmless virus into which you then insert the gene that codes mm. for that coronavirus surface protein. So that the virus so the virus either doesn't replicate well or doesn't replicate at all, but still makes that protein, uh, that spike protein, and then you make an immune response to the spike protein. So it's like the, it's like the subunit approach, except it's a little fancier. And then the the next strategy is you just give the gene itself that codes for the surface protein. So that's the messenger RNA approach, right? You just give messenger RNA, that messenger RNA is translated to the spike protein, and then you make an antibody response to the spike protein. And then there's the DNA approach. You give the DNA, which then is transcribed to messenger RNA that's then translated to to, uh, the protein. So that all those Mm -hmm. things are being tried, all of them. There is more money spent on trying to make this vaccine That has ever been spent before by by governments, by philanthropy, by academic institutions. Mm -hmm. It's in its own league. So that's good. And, you know, we sort of move quickly now from phase one, phase two, which is basically larger numbers of people to make sure you got the dose right, uh, larger numbers of people to make sure that it's safe or at least doesn't cause any common side effects. And, and eventually larger numbers of people to make sure that the, the dose you're giving consistently induces an immune response, even though you have no idea whether that immune response mm-hmm. is actually protected. You don't know that yet. The only way to know these things is to do phase three study. And that's the key. We need to do large phase three studies for any vaccine we're considering putting into people. And by, by that, I mean, give the vaccine to 20,000 people, give a placebo to 10,000 people, and then you can see to what degree it works and to what degree it's safe. That you can mm-hmm. do. And we should demand that. Uh, and then what worries me is that if this, uh, if this process is politicized and people like our government, for example, were are really ready to say it's safe and effective, that's a problem. And, you know, you have the pressure of an mm-hmm. oncoming election in November. And, you know, this, it's, I just don't want an October surprise with, uh, with this vaccine. Let it play out. I think the best case scenario is you, it would take six to nine months to do the kind of study I just said, and then to analyze those data, and then you'll see whether you, you can get the vaccine. And when you said you wouldn't get it, I would say I would say wait to see what the data show, because if this virus is still discouraged that it is, and the U.S. is killing one to two thousand people a day, and you have a vaccine that that appears to be safe and effective, get it. So I would say you
0: should get your <laughs> vaccine after I get my vaccine. Excellent, excellent. I mean, there's a lot to digest there. So as you mentioned the process for getting the the vaccine for covid-19 we we are at currently stage phase 1 phase 2 and the most important phase would be phase 3 where you feel like we could attain that within 6 to 9 months if we have that large concerted effort what is usually the limiting re- reagent like what's what's the part that is the hardest part to overcome at this point
1: as a general rule, the mm-hmm. hardest part about vaccines is making. The manufacture is not as easy as it sounds. You have to mass produce this biological. You have to have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial. You have to do real-time stability studies to make sure that the vaccine doesn't de- degrade as mm-hmm. it goes from the tarmac to the person's arm. For mRNA vaccine, which seems to be getting a lot of press. You know, the good news about messenger RNA is it degrades rapidly in your body. So I think you can assume it's going to be safe. The bad news is it degrades rapidly, period. So, you know, you have to make sure that it is stabilized. Usually it's stabilized with a so-called complex lipid delivery system, Mm. which has never been scaled up. And I mean, you you see, it's, it's, see, like if you're making a moxicillin, you know, the, it's a small molecule drug. You can say, I got 50 milligrams of moxicillin per tablet in this batch. I have 50 milligrams in the other batch. That's not true with biologicals. The process becomes the product, and the process has to be the same from one batch to the next batch to the next batch, and mm-hmm. um, that's where the problems come.
0: You know, mm-hmm. is in, in scale up. And forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth. You feel at this stage, the the messenger RNA vaccine process, is leading the charge, for lack of a better word, at this point. Because yeah, you're mentioning a lot of steps along the way, and you, as you mentioned, there was for you and your team to do rotavirus that was 20 plus years. So what is it about the process now that's making it happen quicker? That's the that's part I'm trying to put a finger on. Is it like, is it the fact that there's so many people in the world that are, that are at this time going, uh, that have that same cause and is trying to have that solution is like, what is the, the what's allowing us to accelerate this?
1: I think also there's a lighter okay. touch from the regulatory agencies. So typically the FDA, you have to get a licensed mm-hmm. product. This won't be a licensed product. It'll be sort of a quote-unquote approved product through the so-called emergency use acquisition or, I'm or, uh, sorry, use, emergency use, and the A stands for emergency okay. use authorization. So it, that's what it is, emergency use authorization, which will speed up the process. So that, that's probably the biggest thing is regulation. Regulatory. It's not going to go mm-hmm. through the normal FDA so like
0: like like I'm four years old, if you didn't have to go up against so many obstacles with rotavirus back in the day, what would be the potential timeline for for that development if there wasn't su- such that administrative level of self?
1: I, still, I yeah. still think that five years, possible you could make a vaccine in five years. I, I feel the same way about this vaccine, actually, but we'll see how it plays out. As long as, as, long as the studies are done that prove safety and proves that, I mean, you, know, you can't really ever prove absolute safety, but at least you can prove that. It doesn't have an uncommon side effect before, before it's release, And, you know, you, when you're giving something that, say, 20,000 people pre-licensure, you know, you still may find something unpleasant when you put it right. in tens of millions of people post-licensure. You're not going to rule out rare side effects pre-licensure, but you can at least feel somewhat comfortable. And so, the, you know, that because this virus is discouraged, you're willing to accept a little right. more uncertainty and, and than with other vaccines. Because
0: I'm trying to think, I think I heard you on a, another talk, another podcast talk about, you know, when vaccines can go wrong, and I think it was, we were discussing dengue fever. Can you explain a bit, like, what happened there?
1: Well, first of all, dengue is unusual. I mean, da- dengue is, is one of those rare viruses where you get, there's four different serotypes of virus. If you get infected with, say, serotype one, and then your second infection is with serotype two, mm-hmm. you actually have worse disease, so called dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome, which is as bad as it sounds. Mm-hmm. Most viruses don't do that. There's a reason for that. It's called antibody-dependent enhancement. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to see that with most viruses. So I, okay. I don't think that's okay. going to be a problem with this so vaccine.
0: So basically, in terms of your best case scenario at this point, when do you think the timeline uh, the timeline would be for us to be able to develop this? I, I, I guess if everything worked perfectly, it's possible we could have no, a vaccine by the middle of next okay. year. And and what's your... I mean, since we last talked, like, has anything changed Like in terms of your... Opinions of like the level of virility, the amount of people that have COVID nineteen, the projections of death—has any of that changed in your opinion since we've, you know, it's been two months and we've seen this thing play out for that period of time? Has anything changed in your in your mind?
1: Yeah, I thought when, when when we first started to see the virus come into this country and kill people. I thought this is not gonna be as bad as flu. I mean flu still kills, you know, flu has killed up to sixty five thousand people in, in our country this year, it caused seven hundred thousand hospitalizations. Flu's bad. I, I couldn't imagine it was be as bad as flu, but I was wrong. I mean it's worse than flu. But I, I think the reason I was wrong was I never imagined we would be this bad at it. I mean the the, the you know, we the, the the mistakes that we made that other countries didn't make were that we, we were really not only mm. slow to test, we're still not testing it at a Enough. I mean, you looked at countries like Germany or Japan or South Korea or China or, or Singapore, they did so much better than we did. I, I kept thinking, okay, here's the number of deaths in China. Here's the number of deaths in South Korea. You know, if you extrapolate their countries, our countries will have the X number of deaths. What I didn't realize was that we'd be 231st out of 240 countries in deaths per million, that, uh, that we have 4% of the world's population wow. and 30% of its deaths. I mean, that I never thought. I do think in retrospect, and I did say early on, I thought we could have been more surgical mm-hmm. about our quarantine. I still think that's true. I think what we should have done right at the beginning was it got in the army and the National Guard mm-hmm. to protect nursing homes. I mean, half the deaths in, in the Northeast are in nursing homes. And the Northeast accounts for half of the overall deaths. So you could argue a quarter of the deaths have come from nursing homes, protect nursing homes, and, and then protect crowds. I mean, try and keep people, because it's crowded, dense populations. That's where this is do adequate testing. I mean, do the testing that, you know, that people like South Korea did or groups like South Korea, you know, where you're doing 5 million tests a day in this country, 30 million tests a week and see where this is and then try and, and make sure everybody who's older like me stays home and that anybody who, and mm-hmm. anybody who is, and, and is quarantined. Frankly, I think anybody who's, who's sick has to be quarantined. And then anybody who's exposed to people who are sick stay home because what's going to happen is we just figured, look, we don't, we, we're not doing the testing. Everybody stays home. You know, so we just shut down the economy. So, so what's happened is there's two phases of this public health disaster. Phase one, the virus causes suffering and hospitalization of death. Phase two, mm. massive joblessness. I mean, we are already at, at almost a 30% jobless rate. That's unbelievable. I mean, that's we're in the Great Depression era. We, we have... With massive joblessness comes massive homelessness. With massive homelessness comes, because it's always the poor who suffer, it's always the poor and vulnerable who suffer the most, will come food insecurity and domestic violence increase and increase in child abuse and suicide and depression, et cetera. I mean, that's, that's round two. And it's going to take us a while to get out of that. And so you wonder whether there was a smarter way to do this with the way Germany. How did, how did Germany throw it out? They did massive testing and they said, OK, these, these groups can go back to work and these groups can't because they wanted to get back to work, but they did it in a smart way. I mean, what we're doing is just saying, go back to work. We sort of make it like a uh, libertarian issue. You have People in the streets marching, they want to get back to work, you know, and so they just go to the Supreme Court and then state Supreme Court. It's just mm-hmm. stupid. We should have done testing. We just don't have that country. We just couldn't pull ourselves together to do it. Not that we didn't have the scientific expertise or the ec- the economic resource. We just didn't do it because we don't have good leadership in this country. As well. Wow. At least you know, not I at mean, the federal
0: level. I mean, I think you know the viewpoint of many Canadians when it comes to your leadership. But it's interesting. Like, I, I guess I, I didn't, because you hear a, little about, a lot about Sweden. You hear about England. You hear about, you know, Italy. But you didn't hear too much about the German approach because I know their their numbers were is it fair to say it was around the middle of the pack in in Europe? But I didn't realize that they had that that kind of approach where you know we're gonna get back to work like like we're not gonna have a necessary necessarily like a w- one size fits all everyone gets back to work what have you. But like the people that are like was it the people that tested negative or was it like people that were that were like low risk of dying from COVID in Germany?
1: Um, and they did much better. We, we had about 250 deaths per uh, million. Mm. They had 90 deaths per million. They had a third mm. of what we had. Um, interestingly, Sweden, which did nothing really, they had, as compared to our, our 250, they had, uh, it was more like, uh, no, it was, I'm sorry. it's, it's we, had, we had 25 deaths per million. I think they, they had, um, um, they had uh, about a third more. They had a third more and Germany had a third of what we had. So by doing nothing, so we mm-hmm. did a little worse, but not a lot worse, which tells you how badly we did it. I'm not sure why. I mean, Germany was just better at at mm-hmm. knocking on doors and testing people. They really went on, on massive testing, and and so you know people initially said, well, you know, you can't do what South Korea does because it's more of a, uh, it's less of a democracy, and therefore they can do things in South Korea we ne- would have never tolerated. But th- th- our country's similar to Germany. There's no reason mm-hmm. we shouldn't have. I mean, been so able to do what of, they some of it,
0: and I don't like to stereotype, but you know, one of the typical scenarios with germany is that they they tend to abide by the rules and uh i don't know if there's a, would be as many people marching in the streets as as you're mentioning talking about um their rights and uh, need to work but yeah I, I it's there's so much i find this so interesting like the fact that you know sweden didn't do well as you mentioned didn't do much of a i don't know you even call it i mean they didn't lock down but uh, were they socially isolating I think there was some talk that they were doing some level of that. But yeah, they're still their ICUs were never overrun. They, I don't know what their economic situation is, but it's certainly on paper should be better than a lot of our scenarios. And an interesting, one of the guests that we're having soon, is um, his name is uh, Ivor Cummins. And he was talking about how there's some evidence even that lockdowns have no significant impact compared to just straight up social isolation uh, socially isolating, which I thought was like, I hadn't seen this evidence. I still haven't seen this evidence. And I don't know if you've come across any of that or have any thoughts towards that. Uh...
1: No, it's an interesting thing. Dave Rubin, who's the head of the policy lab at Children's Hospital, of Philadelphia said, you know, we should just stop talking about testing and just make sure we wear masks, social distance and wash our hands a lot. I mean, that's, that's probably the, the pickup for that the, beyond testing is, is probably, uh, you know, not that much different. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you're right. And, and. That's why you course <laughs> we have a president who doesn't wear a mask.
0: Because oh, you don't wear a so mask. Maybe just even just to be c- clear for you, Paul, if you ran, if you were to be president, you were in charge. How would be from this point on, like what would be your your approach?
1: First thing, fire <laughs> Bill Barr. Okay. <laughs> Attorney General is out. All right. <laughs> That's probably not what you meant, but if I'm hey, president, man, your, that, can I just do house. that first? Uh, absolutely. Done. <laughs> <laughs> you mean it's president from this point on or president at the beginning? Actually,
0: both, actually,
1: both. So at the beginning, it's always easy in retrospect, but I mean, really don't, don't you know, sh- the minute it, it becomes clear in China that there's a problem, you know, which I, and China was not a great player here. I mean, it shouldn't have taken mm. a whistleblower to tell us that there was a problem in China. Um, you know, shut down um, any sort of travel from an endemic country, and the minute it was clear that there was a problem in in, in France and the United Kingdom and Spain and Italy, shut down travel from mm-hmm. Europe. I mean, that was New York's problem. New York, you know, kind of for like half our deaths at one point, in large part, or at least New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, because of that that European travel shut that down, and then and then do you know do really do at the beginning mm-hmm. do testing and contact tracing, and, and and so you can you can figure out where the problem is. Have the same problem as New York city does initially. So, so, and, yeah. and then protect nursing homes. The, the, that was key. Like a quarter of the deaths in the U S are from nursing homes. Nobody walks into that nursing home who who's, who's uh, who hasn't been tested, you know? And, and so I, I think that's, that's probably what I would. And then also, you know, masks and personal protective equipment, you have to ramp that up. You can do that through this defense procurement act. I mean, he mm-hmm. could have done that, but, it, but Trump didn't do that. Yeah. Um, so I would have done all those things now. I, you know, we're just doing this grand national experiment. Everybody's, many people are going back. I think every state at some level is going back to work. And so we'll see in a few weeks uh, where we should have gone back to work and where we shouldn't have. See, it's not that, it's not that the cases that, that bother me because the cases are all based on testing. Mm-hmm. And testing is sporadic and haphazard. It's really it's the percentage mm-hmm. of tests that are positive. That's a key thing. I mean, it, it really as a percentage drops. That means you're doing more testing and you're, you know, and so that's, that's mm-hmm. that explains that it's the deaths. We have to see a dramatic decrease wow. in the deaths. we not. Yeah,
0: I was wondering too about because yeah, we're all going back to work. It's we're, it's summertime, we're, like weather's better, and I've heard some theories. The fact that most respiratory illnesses are seasonal, like you you will get a drop off in summer. Do you feel is there any reason not to think that with COVID nineteen?
1: No, I mean it's still an envelope virus. So it's its physicochemical characteristics should be similar to other envelope viruses, which is to say it shouldn't do well in, in heat and humidity because the envelope sort of crinkles and doesn't survive as well. It's lipid. And and that, you know, because it's meant the virus is spread by small droplet, that when it's humid out, those small droplets accrete or acquire water more and therefore drop more quickly. So you become less contagious. I mean, that's why Flu is a winter, not summer disease. That should also be true here. Mm-hmm. It's also true of human coronavirus. So you would think it would be true of this bad coronavirus, but there's a lot of surprises with this virus. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's more contagious than people thought. Now it has this post-infectious sort of multi-organ sy- system inflammatory response, this vasculitis um, that, that is Kawasaki's like that no one anticipated. And it's, and it's post-infectious. I mean, many of the children who have this never had any initial symptoms of infection. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird virus. I had
0: a buddy just, I, they received the grand rounds on the link between Kawasaki's and and COVID-19. And I, I mean, I wasn't there, but he, he insinuated that this is not based on solid evidence. Like what's your understanding of the link? Because I know this was part of the worry for people like, I don't, like where I'm at schools close to September and at least. And so I get that question all the time about you know should I be worried about the kids getting this and getting this Kawasaki? Do you have any thoughts towards the link?
1: Yeah, so that's the question: is it just sort of a temporal mm-hmm. association or a causal association? You know, it's a virus that's fairly common. It's it's a, it's a, it's a um, inflammatory response that's uncommon, and are we just get it just they just happen to be temporally associated. Right now, I, I think it, it looks like it probably is causally associated, um, but I think mm. over time we will figure this out. You know, th- I think now you have five children who um, who have gone to auto- who who have died, and it'll be interesting to see if they do autopsies. Do you find the virus in endothelial cells, or and, and then if not, is there sort of a pattern of cytokines and chemokines that are or, that are released associated with this that are fairly typical now and distinct from Kawasaki's? Because it's not Kawasaki's. I mean, Kawasaki's. Is a disease of a two to six year old. This is a disease of the six to mm. like teenager age. Um, so it's a different age group. And there's some characteristics that are different. Children with Kawasaki always have a high, very high platelet counts. These kids have very low platelet it's counts. A different baby. So it's a, it's a it's different It's interesting, disease. though,
0: about the endothelial damage. Like, I, I wonder, like, in the adult world, we saw a lot of renal replacement therapy, like patients needing to go on dialysis and a lot of, um, which we thought maybe could have been because of um clotting we saw a lot of pulmonary embolisms leg like deep vein thromboses and so we actually started to anticoagulate these patients quite early not with like even before having any evidence of 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 clots and so th- yeah this it does behave in in different ways like we you know it's it seems to come in two waves or two phases when we ventilate the patient so you have it's a it's a different baby so I definitely hear what you're saying. Like we can't assume at all. It's going to behave like every other virus uh, respiratory virus. Cause there are some unique properties. I hope, I hope this kid's thing doesn't play out. Cause that would, Oh my God, complicate life. And people are already anxious about this thing. Like, I mean, you get, you were telling us on the last show about, you know, even walking into a store and people shaking and, and, and the level of anxiety that's going on and, I feel like that's d- dissipated to a certain degree, but yeah, there's still a lot of unknowns. But yeah, they got they got also to my question about like why we're not necessarily seeing COVID go crazy in like Africa, for example. Maybe it is has to do with the, the 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 temperature and humidity, as you mentioned. Um, would that be your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, that that would be the guess. I, we'll see. I think we're soon to learn as we head into summer months here in the United States. I think what's going to happen is it will probably go down in the United States, and then, you know, the administration will declare victory, mm-hmm. and then it'll
0: come back again in November. Like during election time.
1: Yeah, it, the other thing is the virus, it does mutate. I mean, it's a single-stranded RNA virus, so it does mutate a little bit, but it does. I don't think it's, it's become more or less virulent, and I don't think it's become more or less contagious, but not solid evidence for that. And the most important thing is I don't think it's, mutating away from from a single serotype i think it's like measles and mumps in that regard i think it i don't think we have to going to have to worry that we have to have a yearly vaccine because the virus mutates Interesting. just in way that, well, I,
0: that someone told me yesterday about serology testing that they were they were worried that there you know there could be some false positives just the fact that you've had coronavirus in the past like human coronavirus for example that that might cause some false positives in terms of serology testing, any thoughts on that? Or have you caught wind of any of that?
1: Well, there's a lot of tests out there, many Mm. of which are not FDA approved. Um, They look for binding antibodies, meaning antibodies that bind to the virus, Mm. but don't necessarily neutralize the virus. So you don't know that. That, that, The neutralization tests are just research tools, not commercially available. So I I worry about the antibody tests. I think they can be falsely reassuring if you find your antibody positive. In fact, those may not be protective levels of antibodies. You don't know that. And that they can be falsely frightening and that, you know, that it's not a sensitive test or not as not. And so it doesn't pick up antibodies and and they're not a specific test, which viewpoint, there's no reason you can't make a highly sensitive, mm-hmm. highly specific antibody test, but there's a there's too many out there to So, so that you're worried that maybe mm-hmm. uh, there's some out there that aren't very good.
0: Yeah. And just cause like, I know they were using these tests, I think in New York and California, which also showed a lot of, made, made some inferences like that covid was a lot more widespread than we thought do you think there's any validity to that
1: again it puts it puts 100 value on the test but it, it, you know it found i think it was a grocery store in new york city that like 40 percent of people were positive for antibodies arguing that you know that's much more widespread than you thought but again those home antibody tests worry me i, I think it, it, as long as researchers are doing this study then and i think researchers may have done that study mm-hmm. in new york but i feel a lot better Excellent. about the test yeah well, I,
0: I guess i want to Thank you for taking the time to do this. I I really appreciate you taking the time. Also, I also want to also tell you that you're a bit of an inspiration. Like we we ended up doing a show last week on child maltreatment d- during COVID-19 and you know your your talks and your and your interviews really got me thinking about the secondary consequences of COVID-19 and and not to say that we shouldn't be doing what we are doing but by addressing it or or bringing it to the forefront then gives us a better chance of addressing some of these concerns. So I also want to just give commend you for, you know, earlier on just getting people to really think of, about what we're doing and and seeing if we could have a, a smarter approach to some of this. So I want to thank you for that. And I also want to uh, look forward to I got your book Overkill. I hope I haven't had a chance to dive in yet, but I, I hope it's been a good uh journey and you've, you've been able to Get the word out we'll certainly be uh publicizing that on our uh on our uh, show notes and so forth but uh i really but when you, when you finish it let absolutely. me know what i mean be curious here what you, you, think about you and i haven't talked too much candidly but i'm like one of my main jobs as an icu doc half the time is telling the kids i call the residents the kids to stop ordering tests i'm like you do not need that test what are you going to do with that info even i don't care if it's blood work i don't care if it's easy to to get it's you got to stop ordering tests for curiosity because it, it will just cause damage and uh we you know it's it's something i see every day and so i think the theme of that of like just less is more to me is beautiful absolutely beautiful
1: good yeah. <laughs> that's the theme all right good to all see right, you thanks a lot okay bye sure, take care bye-bye
0: Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Offit, put some insight into what we really need to do, what the steps are to developing this vaccine for COVID-19. Please leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or at quadcast. Sign up for our newsletter. We're doing a monthly newsletter to give you up to give you updates on what's coming down the pipeline, events, competitions, chance to win new merchandise. Just want to also thank our team members, the social media team, marketing team, show notes crew. We love you guys. Thanks for for all the work you do. And uh, take care, everybody. We'll connect soon.